Scott Cawthorn, I bet you're rich. In honor of Five Nights at Freddy's, what animatronic from your childhood would make a terrifying slasher villain? I'm Katie Rich, and I was at the North Carolina State Fair this weekend, and there is a very large uh, Smokey the Bear that's really only a little bit animatronic, but a person can speak through it, and I think any 20-foot-tall bear would be pretty terrifying coming to life. <laughs> I'm at Patches. I was going to pick the country bears from Disney, but then Katie also mentioned animatronic bears, so I'm actually going to pivot and go with the Hall of Presidents, which is, I don't want any of them near me, no. and if it maybe if it's just my childhood version, it's a little easier to stomach than what's currently in the Hall of Presidents as of uh, 2023. Oy, I ooh. take. Getting, <laughs> getting political on this podcast. Good Yikes. Man. Oh, no. Ugh. I know. Not in 2023. <laughs> um, uh, hey, it's me, David the Seven. I was going to say the Hatbox Ghost, but I live for to see Jared Leto underplay him. So I'm going to go with Mr. Munch from Chuck E. Cheese. He was sort of like the fuzzy grimace. That's how I remember him, terrifyingly. You know the characters from Chuck E. Cheese. That's amazing. I'm still stuck on the idea of Jared Leto underplaying anything. I don't believe that that can be true. Well, yeah, I, I, I thought I misheard what, what <laughs> Dave said. You, you, uh, saw, you saw it, David. I mean, this is the concept of Jared Leto and underplaying. They do not go hand in hand, uh, but the movie does not really give him much to do. Really, the most <laughs> exciting thing about his performance or the film as a whole is the opening title card promising Jared Leto as the Hatbox Ghost, which should was the we, first time that I was made aware of that concept. Should we Haunted no, Mansion this no, week? I think we did or something. No, I still haven't God. seen that, so my, I remember talking about how bad it was. I've for yet to a long weigh in. <laughs> okay, David's lost to go. Um, now I'm just in a huff. You made me think about the fucking movie. <laughs> I'm David Ehrlich, and I don't know, the only animatronics that I can really think of on a daily basis or at any given time are the cast of the TV show Dinosaurs. Mm. <laughs> Not the mama. We're gonna need another Timmy, etc. So I can't even remember what the prompt was, nor do I really understand. Which, which, which one of them would be Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. No, that sounds scary. That sounds scary enough. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good. Then, well then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 449. It is the week of Wednesday, October 25th. That is the day that in 1978, Halloween, directed by one John Carpenter, uh, was released. It feels very close to Halloween for them to have released that movie. Like, no time for... suppose the Halloween directed by several John Carpenters standing on top of each other in a trench coat. <laughs> yeah, that is what all those sequels have been by. Uh, I feel like they could have really owned the whole week of October, but I guess uh, movie marketing... They didn't know. They didn't know that this, it was a genre-defining hit. They'd... They were just like, when can we get those opening weekend eyes? Yeah, that's fair enough. Uh, we're all back in one place. Welcome home, Dave. Hey, thank you. Welcome back, David. You didn't go anywhere, but we're glad to have you back anyway. Thank you. Uh, Happy to be anywhere. Yeah. Uh, and I believe the people have been talking about us. Patches and I, I think we talked about doing reviews last week and gave up. We like couldn't figure out what to do with ourselves. Is that how that happened? Yeah, there were not reviews on last week's episode. I, I couldn't even remember the email for people to send reviews <laughs> to. Right. So, so, let alone read them. Now... We're back in capable hands. I hear we have some emails and some reviews. 
Yeah, we got a we got a beefy one. A beefy review by Patrick Derby Scott. It says definitely a podcast about movies, except when Patches picks the topic. Burn. <laughs> lady, lady and gentlemen, I see what they're doing. Uh-huh. Long time listener, first time, etc. I considered posting a review about 18 months ago. If I recall correctly, I had some smart things to say about Severance and its debt to Kazuo Ishiguro that I wanted to share. When I logged into this app, I saw you already had a review bank for the week and decided to keep my powder dry. Yes, I'm one of those reviewers, at least partially motivated by a desire to never hear about Marvel Snap again. (laughs) And I'll take the opportunity to address David directly. David, I sincerely hope you know that anyone who says they're interested in your latest progress in a corporate mobile game that is your primary means for occupying yourself while you hide in the bathroom from your toddler is lying to you. Well, Patrick Derby Scott, no one has ever suggested that they were interested in hearing about my progress in Marvel Snap. That is why it is a punishment to our listenership for not leaving us reviews. So why a review now? And can you all hear whatever very loud sound my I think nope. like must must be drunk wife is now making in the kitchen having just come home from uh, from a bar with her friends. Sounds like she's cooking firecrackers. I have no idea what's going on. So why a review now? Well, because as it sometimes rarely happens in discussions about pop culture in the United States in 2023, books were recently discussed in the war room, and more importantly, recommendations were requested. And for better or worse, that's something I feel qualified to provide. Though I've fallen in this world from optimistic and energetic English PhD candidate slash adjunct professor to lowly software product manager at a major studio, no less, Mm. I still spend the bulk of disposable income and time on books. So in patches in his most co- mostly coherent, definitely idiosyncratic, but fundamentally likable way, as for book re- recommendations, my ears perked up. Now, I won't burden this review page or your listeners with a laundry list of books that you must read, but I have sent an email with a few books that I think you all will like. An email they must send, Dave, uh, confirm, receive. Uh, because uh, yep, I think... it on now. Great. Because I think, A, they fit the general taste of the group, and B, they are really, really good. Fiction only. If you want nonfiction picks, look out the window. No, he didn't say that. You'll probably need to reach out to my dad. <laughs> Dave, if you want to read the email along with this review, have at it. He doesn't. Katie, no call out for you beyond keep killing it. I like books. In some. I'll take some books. Shut up. In some. Happy <laughs> reading and truly continue the great work. Working at a studio. How I reach find... his dad. <laughs> so you're giving I, up I on some. fiction. You don't need fiction books at all. Um, Working at a studio, I find myself on daily basis due to habit and consensus talking about content a lot. It's an unfortunate reality of the work. This podcast is a welcome respite that reminds me that movies are magic and TV can also be engrossing and meaningful. It reinforces that narrative and art are not things that can be abstracted into terminology as glib as content. Many thanks for the hours of enjoyment. Patrick, you are very welcome, Patrick. Thank you for that long and loquacious review well spoken Uh, i don't believe we have read this review from mononoke inc who says a great grab bag of goodies sorry for the alliteration and use the word goodies never apologize for alliteration Mm -hmm. in my presence i just recommended this to a friend as it's like a grab bag of different pop cultural things that i sold them on trying out the pod so i hope that sells other people as well the conversations are varied in perspective and consistent in quality. It wasn't long after I started listening, but I began looking forward to the back and forth from the host every week. Last week, they discussed books and what they were reading. And while David didn't have much to recommend beyond children's books, not that there's anything wrong with that, he did recommend one of my favorite books that I read this year. I made a note of tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow because of a glowing tweet from David months ago. Check the book back out and absolutely love it. Keep up the wonderful show. Uh, great time. Great, great, uh, well-timed reference to Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, a book about people playing video games. <laughs> we're, playing, mm. we're going to be talking about video talking games. Talking about video games this. tonight. 
We're what one concept. of the leading video game podcasts on the, um, on the podcast. Believe... Is that according to Polygon? Is that an official take? Yeah, yeah. We're, <laughs> the, list. Yeah. we're the Time Magazine of video game podcast <laughs> listing. All right, now, now you're getting into the weeds of deep fighting in the war room lore. Uh, okay, well, Dave, is that enough? Yeah. Nope, those are the two. Uh, the last All one right. we read uh, started off like, like many I discovered this podcast through Blank Check, and I just want to update you guys that uh, Griffin Newman and I had a very long conversation between like 1130 and midnight one night <laughs> about whether or not it, it was better that it would be a bit that I was just the one fighting in the war room person who's never on blank check or whether I have to fly back to New York to be on blank check. Mm. So uh, still happening. I, this must have been, so where did they land on that? This yeah. must have been after I left. Oh no, you were there. It's just we, we he was like, I haven't talked to Dave in a while and uh, we yes. uh, went off in a corner together. Um, we have two emails at fitwr.podcast at gmail.com. Uh, that's where you send your emails. Uh, this first one is titled Possession Movies. Uh, it says, hello, I wanted to, rec- to comment on your discussion of possession movies. The past three years, I have done the 100 Horror Movies in 92 Days Challenge, where from August 1st to October 31st, you watch 100 horror movies that are new to you. I have the time because I don't have children. <laughs> As a result, I have watched a lot of possession movies, like a lot. I strongly recommend people look at non-Christian ones. Buddhist, Muslim, Jewish, Hindu, everyone gets possessed. I find many of these much more interesting and sometimes scarier, bringing new ideas to the trope. A few years ago, I watched a Buddhist one where a girl was possessed by the spirit of a really angry tree. How do you reason with the tree? Trees don't care about you. Good stuff. Love the podcast. Keep up the good work. Sincerely, Neva. Well, here's here's good news. Before the podcast, when we were planning uh, what we were going to do next week, or we locking it down, we convinced somehow Katie, who does not like horror movies, to watch a possession movie for next week. Oh boy! I, 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 what I boy. hear is a particularly <laughs> gruesome possession movie. Yeah. So uh, on the twenty seventh, when Evil Lurks comes to Shutter, we're gonna watch it and talk the fact about that it. you Katie, are saying this on the show means I have like to watch it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm saying it out loud to make sure don't, that we have I to don't do it. Like this, I feel <laughs> trapped. <laughs> Trick or treat. <laughs> I also agree to watch Scooby Doo. That's how you convince me. <laughs> it's like wrap the dog Great pill possession. in bacon. I watched <laughs> uh, the nine and a half episodes of The Haunting of Hill House this week, and I am convinced, and I understand this is kind of minority opinion, that uh, I guess Midnight Mass is, is up there. Everyone loves that one. But that but that uh, that was a cameo <laughs> from that was Strong Lisa. That uh, yeah, that that's great. That Bly Manor is the best one. Midnight Mass a little overrated. Uh, it's that, be- that and Bly Manor, but Bly, I think Bly Manor is really the, the best one. The one where his where Flanagan's emotionality dovetails best with the horror that he's playing I'm, around with. I'm I'm kind of with. Yeah, interesting. He's I'm not. But we have one more. Uh, we have one more email. Here we go. We're almost through. <laughs> We're not going to talk about House of Usher on this podcast. Yeah. Uh, the subject of uh, this email is oh potatoes, and uh, Nicholas writes hello Fitwer crew. Said it's now the appropriate season. May I please request an encore presentation of the hit song "Potato Mr. Patches"? Thank you. This is all you, Dave. I mean, I don't remember the lyrics besides "Oh, Potato Mr. Patches," but I will find it uh, because I don't throw recordings away. So don't even. You really, you definitely do not. Can you explain at all what you're talking about? I don't know what this is referring to. I don't know either. it's from Over the Garden Wall. There's a song called Potato and Molasses, Molasses and at one point I m- made a song called Potato, Mr. Patches. Uh, I forget why. Something about was potato bread? 
fighting in the war room? Or was I, it would have been. Did you just tweet it this? It had to be. I, have you guys I, seen Over the Garden Wall, Katie? No, David? but I, I was no. looking up cozy is, Halloween movies, and it, yeah, your kids are. But now it's a show. This one. But yeah, it's yes. a show. It's like six episodes. It's a mini series, a one-off on Cartoon Network that has become now timeless. It it is like Rankin and Bass level must watch over Spooky Season, and when fall sets in, yeah, like you gotta watch Over the Garden. I feel Wall. like yeah, it's Fantastic Mr. Perfect. Fox has been in our rotation for a long time. This feels like a real adjacency, right? Uh, scarier. Okay. All right. But yes. Yeah. More, more Halloween. There's a tail gets sh- shot off by a shotgun in Fantastic Mr. Fox. This oh, is a I've... Halloween show. Okay. All right. It's on our, it's on our <laughs> SoundCloud account. Remember we had a SoundCloud account? I just did. Those are the days. Uh, cool. Yeah. I found it. Um, you can email us at fitwr.podcast at gmail.com. You can also leave us a review in the Apple podcast app. That's the place that you get to leave a review to stop us from talking about Marvel Snap. And we have a podcast coming up right after this. Cut a potato, Mr. Patches. <laughs> I'm going to read this review because I'm Woo-hoo. very excited. Um, uh, somebody by the name of Patty Wren left this review. Subject is, this podcast is a sandwich, also a poem. And they write, Patches is the bread, white, maybe potato. I'm pretty sure I should be offended by that. Oh, potato, Mr. Patches. That's what a review described him as is a listener said and it went to his head he'd rather be dead than that kind of bread oh potato mr patches making podcasts history classes if you know him you'd call him a poem he's got an opinion once the movie stops showing oh potato mr patches he's getting older he's gonna need glasses on Skype cause he's writing all night and he wants to make the podcast right oh potatoes Mr. Patches he's got 10 things left on his task list when you need some clout he'll make you shout for potato Mr. Patches potato patches damn it me explaining Spider-Man related things? What is going on? This was your on? idea, so Buster. I'm so happy. Uh, where, this was where your in idea. The loves Marvel. Yeah, it it loves Marvel Marvel sequels. Mm-hmm. I, I, I certainly uh, seem never to be had enough of. an outspoken fan of uh, Marvel's video games division. You are. <laughs> Although this is really Sony driving the show and the people at Insomniac Games who, with Spider-Man 2, which has become a blockbuster it for Sony and sold you know, whatever number of millions of copies of the selling days. Sony Studios game yeah. of all time. Um, it's only because I deigned to write about it. Mm-hmm. Um, is, uh, <laughs> yeah, a sequel to their first open world Spider-Man game, which is basically premised on the idea of like, what if you could be Spider-Man swing around an open world? By open world, New you York mean City. open New York. Uh, where yes, the world is New York, New York and by open, I mean... Everything is closed except for outside. <laughs> but, um, is it real is, New York? How real is it? Yes, it is. It yes. is real with major asterisks. Sure. Asterisks. Asterisks. Uh, one that my the drunken wife, who has already cameoed at least twice in this episode uh, and graduated from Barnard, was very upset that Columbia is you know rendered almost photorealistically because of its <laughs> prominence in the original Spider-Man movie. Uh, where, whereas Barnard does not exist. Um, <laughs> that is... They had uh, to make room for the Wakandan embassy. That is... Sorry. Yeah, they, still, 
But, you know, this is the sequel. I mean, the graphics are so impressive and the gameplay is so fluid that there is sort of an uncanny valley effect where you are, or at least in my experience, especially frustrated by the lack of realism wherever it crops up. Um, it's more glaring and sort of like gets under your nails a little bit. Um, you know, it's like, okay, there is Columbia, but why is the student center of Columbia, which is an iconic building, uh, not there? Why is it just a random brick building? Why is my entire neighborhood uh, in Brooklyn kind of just digested into downtown and not uh, photorealistic? I understand that the, this would have taken a lot of time. They have three boroughs in this game as opposed to just Manhattan in the previous one. Um, but uh, I give anybody out there, even those who've never been to New York, a opportunity to guess which three. I'm sure you'd be right. Uh, and they, um, yeah, and so like, there, but there's still a lot of corners cut and things glossed over. And while you can now see people doing things inside of uh, buildings and skyscrapers that Spider-Man is running up and down, you still can't actually go inside of any of them. Um, so it really does give the feeling of New York as being a playground. But what a playground it is! Uh, the first game and the Miles Morales spinoff that launched the PS5 uh, were were very impressive and fun in their own rights, but I think this is kind of a revolutionary step forward because of how they've iterated on the mechanics of the, the previous ones. And by that, I mean you can fucking fly from basically the moment the game starts now because Spider-Man has a wingsuit, or any of the Spider-Men, rather. You're playing as both Peter Parker and Miles Morales. Have a wingsuit. grammatically. Sure, of course. Uh, only get... Only get... Uh-huh. Uh, I would never do that to you. Only get more... Um, <laughs> Your, your flying powers only become more advanced as the game goes on. It, what starts as sort of like gliding and making pretty fast descents effectively does become flying before too long. And that is super fun, as is beating up bad guys with your various spider powers. And, and really, and the last thing I'll say before I you know, pass it on to anyone else who's played this game, Dave, I think, just beat it himself, is that um, it really, bec- like, there, there are moments in this game because of the speed at which it moves and how fluidly it goes from scenario to scenario, even more so than its predecessors, that I feel like kind of get to the heart of what it would be to be Spider-Man, to be in the middle of doing something and just sort of overwhelmed by the number of things that require your attention or the people that need saving. You are on your way to one main mission with some urgency, and then you see a carjacking or some unexplained cultists who worship fire maybe dave understands the backstory better than i did um are like stealing a gasoline truck or whatever um and you and but there's a loot box over there that you want and none of these things well i mean i guess some of the the random events that are happening in the city might expire most of these things are not on a clock and yet you do feel them all sort of warring for your attention um and prioritize in our case sort of based on what would be most fun in the moment um, but it, it is kind of a sense of that the freedom to do and go anywhere undercut with the responsibility as Spider-Man is famous for, um, of all these things that you sort of have to do that pop up on your radar. And I think that, you know, if a movie like, if the movie Spider-Man 2 cuts more to the heart than any of the other movies, sort of about the emotional, um, tension of being a Spider-Man, I think this game and the experience of playing it really sort of viscerally conveys the uh, logistical headache of being Spider-Man. Yeah, I can agree with that. Um, I started playing last Friday. We're recording on Tuesday. I just beat it. Uh, It was not my intention to go through it that quickly, but this game has like 
twice as many, if not three times as many cutscene related action sequences as the previous Spider-Man games. So every time I'd be like, I'm just, you know, doing this, these little experiments or something, uh, it would eventually lead me down the road to like a recognizable supervillain, even like when I was, you know, literally riding roller coasters in Coney Island, which is part of a story. It's like, oh, hey, there's Tombstone. It's like, oh, guess I'm doing this now. So um, I am surprised at how propulsive they were able to make it, considering in theory you could switch back and forth between uh, the Spider-Men's uh, at will. Spiders. Uh, there are some spiders. Uh, Spider-Men makes me think of Spider-Man, which is Spider-Man. <laughs> Spider-Man's is close because. There are a lot of times where they're in action sequences together and they call they each call each other Spider-Man. So you kind of just have to go on like voice recognition, but it's like, hey Spider-Man, need to help Spider-Man. And it's like so that's so Spider Spider-Man's is probably close. Anyway, um uh, yeah, I was uh, pleasantly surprised because I'd recently replayed the first game and the Miles Morales game, uh, just to sort of remember how to make my hands work those buttons correctly. And I, when I first uh, started this game, I was like, okay, this is another combo-based game where I have to beat up large mobs of enemies in, you know, various different colors, but it's basically going to be the same enemies and the same mobs. That is true, but they did uh, tweak, as David was saying, they sort of, like, perfected all the systems I thought were pretty good in Miles Morales, and they did make combat uh, slightly more diverse and interesting because... The two Spider-Mans each have different powers, and then you're upgrading different things. And then, it, I, I mean, I think if you watch the trailer, you know that Venom's in this one. So at one point, Spider-Man gets the black suit, and that comes with another uh, skill tree that you get to like also level up. So I was just playing through the game, uh, just like really trying to stop. But I'll be like, just two more, you know, hunters' nests or whatever, and then that would lead into like a major story mission. And so I, I finished the game and then or i got to the end point of the game and i got to the scene where it's like after this the story would conclude so do your upgrades now i had 55 skill points i hadn't assigned yet and what? i was only on i was only on the second uh level of each one of my gadgets so like this game if you know your combos and you play your combos correctly wait does that isn't mean that, that you hadn't uh, you hadn't applied any of your skill points over the course of the game no, no, you get, I, I think you end up getting, like, something like 80 skill points, so I pr applied, like, 30 of them. I basically applied everything so I could lift brutes up in the air, because that's the most annoying uh, enemy type for me, but then didn't do the rest of them, because I was just like, I'm, I'm playing the game fine, why would I stop and upgrade tree? So, I will say that even though I probably ended up spending between, like, 20 to 25 hours on the game, and when I completed it, just because I, you know, got to the end of the story, I was also at 93% completion. I think this game is going to be like one of the easiest platinums if uh, that's your oh, yeah. PlayStation, your PlayStation flavor. Uh, and I'm uh, like, even after sinking all those hours into the game and watching 15 minutes of credits to get to the other scenes, uh, I'm excited to see where they go next. They could do another like interstitial game before uh, Spider-Man 3, but given the success if you are selling this as fun uh, which I, I mean i will say i've heard i've heard from a lot of people that it's, it's very fun that the that the combat is a little clumsy or, or not even clumsy just like complicated and just kind of dull 
to that degree, like that it's so complex at times that, that the fighting isn't even what the fun is about in this game, which you might logically think it is. But is it what where where are you guys finding joy in this? Because it's, from what I can tell, people are having a lot of fun playing. It is very, very, very satisfying to play. And you know, really the only the only standard that I hold or the question that I ask of open world games is do I want to keep playing? Yeah. Uh, do I want to keep exploring this world? I mean, they tend not to be the most narratively exciting. And I do think that Spider-Man 2 does some things. I mean, I am not at all well-versed in the you know, what stories the comic books have told, but the Venom storyline that they tell was new to me, uh, and the dimension of the, the Venom takes on in this story was new to me. Uh, I mean, the writing is okay. All the characters are kind of guileless morons. It's all very, like very sweet and innocent um that's not really what was grabbing me um i you know it's just so satisfying to fly around new york even more satisfying than the combat which is mighty like you can fly i think the high point of the game for me when everything is sort of connecting and working in sync is when you're just like wingsuiting around and you fly over like 100 yards above 100 feet above a uh a skirmish of some kind and without even landing begin like webbing guns out of people's hands uh i did enjoy, i did enjoy the early mission where peter parker starts lecturing uh the bad guys about the dangers that guns provide, present to the people of new york city and why we don't want the nra here um but uh they yeah and like you just are seamlessly beating people up slowing down time launching them in the air um it is extremely extremely satisfying and the more powerful your spider mans get um the more satisfying it becomes and while i hate to invoke you know for for a reviewer uh marvel snap there there's a character <laughs> teased for the next game <laughs> in the end credits of this one whose powers i only know because of their marvel snap card and uh just based on the animation of how they're, they're animated in marvel snap i it was instantly sort of giddy at the possibilities of what playing as them might be like uh and that would be enough to get me to come back for more. So a no, Marvel that... post credit scene actually worked on you for the first time in history. Uh, it's a I video so. game, but yeah. Um, I think Patch's uh, a more direct answer would be uh, some of the gameplay things can get uh, repetitive, but they don't because you're constantly unlocking other sides of it. And then also there's like not only side quests that are essentially different mini games, but there are side quests that'll put you in a different character who controls completely differently. So even though you might get combat down and you might, uh, you know, level up the skills that you want for each Spider-Man, uh, at some point the game will just be like, oh, you're doing this now. And you're like, you know, playing a puzzle game or uh, covering up bad graffiti art with better graffiti or art. Or piloting a uh, drone bee as yes. it shoots holograms of other bees, which was yeah. kind of a bridge too far for me at a certain point, but I appreciate the variety. Yeah, it was. Uh, so there's a bunch of uh, like little sub games that happen. Uh, and then eventually, you know, once there's like the Venom reveal, you, there's a couple of stages where you play as Venom. So even though it could get repetitive, the game has this propulsive mesh thing where it wants you to keep going. And then there are all these little side missions that basically control differently. So there's always it, it feels like there's discovery. I don't know how that's going to go with replayability. There's not a new game plus uh, right now, even though they said they're going to add it by the end of the year. Uh, and I understand why, because some of the mechanics by the end of the game would just be insane to port in the beginning of the game. 
So I will be excited uh, to try it again when they release that. But uh, I still got uh, still got some weird stuff to do, like flying from the financial district to Astoria without touching the ground before I could get this platinum under my belt. But I like it. Spider-Man 2. If you have a PS5, I would uh, check it out. It's, it is. Yeah. It's yeah. fun. It's a lot of fun, and the fucked up thing for a game as massive in scale as it is, is that because of how it's designed and how much fun it is to play and navigate around the city, it just doesn't feel nearly big enough. It, it needs to be, I think it needs to be ten times the size it is, really, to deliver on the promise of what's possible with the, the mechanics they've created. Um, well, we but, said that last time when they doubled the map size, so we're on David our way. I didn't say that Staten shit last Island. time. I didn't play the first, you know. Bronx. Yeah, no, I mean, I need, I I should be able to go on top of uh, the Avengers building and glide all the way to Washington, D.C. Swing all the way to your hometown where you grew up in the burbs. No, no. That's what you're dreaming. I want to go see you in New Jersey. (laughs) What's up, danger? Hey, didn't know they doubted us. Makes it that more marvelous. Sign them up because ominous vibes and I guess anonymous. What's up, danger? We want to briefly talk this week in honor of another friend who wrote a book. It's not just Dave. You're not the only book writer out there, Dave. So stop no, acting the, like the you only are. One. Yeah, only one. You're talking about Britney Spears. You're talking yeah, about yeah. Britney our, Spears. Our, our personal friend Britney, Britney Spears, Spears wrote a book. Um, and we want to talk about it. Um, no, Matt Singer, uh, who has to have been on the show at some point before, right? I don't know. Oh, we, yeah. oh definitely. Oh, yeah. do we dra- how often do we drag our friends in around here? Um, he wrote a book about Siskel and Ebert called Opposable Thumbs. And it's like, it's a history of the Siskel and Ebert show when kind of all of the different ways that they squabbled and the show came together and also about their cultural impact and how, as the title says, they changed film criticism forever. And it's been more of an, edu- reading the book has been more of an education for me than I expected because I don't remember ever not knowing who Siskel and Ebert were. But also, I don't didn't know a ton about them. I had not really seen that much of their show. I've been reading the book and like pulling up clips at the same time. Like their dominant mm. era was a lot in the 80s when I was too young for this stuff. And then Gene Siskel died, what, in like 1999, something like that. Um, so it makes me feel kind of like a bad millennial that I know so little about them, but I'm also like really grateful to learn about them kind of in awe of what they were. And Matt's book has to make a lot of effort to be like, well, you see in the eighties, there weren't just clips from movies available all over the place. So Siskel and Ebert's (laughs) show made it possible for people to see it. Um, which on some level, I'm like, why do you have to explain this to people? And on some level, I'm like, I'm learning things. Um, but I actually don't know where any of you guys land on Siskel and Ebert as influence and influences in your life like none of us would have this podcast i think if it weren't for them so there's a very base influence but am i the only one who feels kind of ignorant about them in general that's an interesting theory would we have this podcast i just don't know that like cisco and film did not exist podcasts as a form like i don't know, i mean it's a technological thing but talking like talking about movies yeah like maybe someone else would have hmm. done it probably but i think the entire idea of like listening to other people argue about movies fight about them even uh, mm-hmm. they made that happen and like right around the time that, we were all being born we don't know what the world is like without that I like their best of and worst of shows which are very streamable on the YouTube uh, that's pretty great just in terms of uh, looking back at movies that now I now appreciate from the 80s and 
Synergistically, like- uh, speaking of what we're talking about this week, Martin Scorsese was on the Best of the 90s episode. Yeah. Yay. Uh, a classic. A classic in my house. And by house, I mean my life. And especially because he included uh, John Juan Juan's 1987 film, The Horse Thief, even though it came out in 1987, but I guess didn't make its way to the States until 1990. That was his bit of advocacy. Always wanted to talk about it. Is that I, something I, that I you like that watched on, on VHS? V- yeah, did you like watch sure the Siskel Niebert Best of the '90s on VHS? Like this? No, I watched the Horse Thief on VHS. Okay, so you I, you uh, just like watched Siskel Niebert like on like I feel like it aired on Saturday yeah, mornings. Yeah, I saw it. For I me. saw it on TV on like Saturday morning Maybe it's at some old, point. Yeah, you know? <laughs> I, I'm 73 years old. I uh, yeah, I I I did uh, watch. I remember seeing that on television. And they also yeah. rerun that one a lot for obvious reasons. Yeah. I mean, and that's like, so clips I would do, I, I still do, like, if I want to, you know, uh, go go into the night without, like, an audiobook or, like, a, watching a movie, I'll watch some Siskel and Ebert uh, before I go to bed occasionally. But then I got to, wow. I got to meet Ebert because he would do these college tours uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s, I think, where he would go around showing a movie and night one, everybody would just watch the movie Night two, they would go through the first half of the movie, and if anybody yelled pause, there was like a room to have like a full room discussion with Ebert uh, in the room. Ebert. Yeah, yeah, he was holding the remote, and he would do the That's thing. That's so and cool. The second night, we would finish it. We went to the Fight Club Ebert screening, uh, which I definitely remember. Uh, my uh, sophomore year English teacher, who we ended up staying friends with, uh, took us. I mean, friends with. We were all still in high school, but. He's the one who took us, even though we weren't sophomores in English anymore. And he like brought us up to talk to Ebert. And Ebert's like, I'm glad you're fostering like film literacy. Do any of you have any questions? And I was like, what did you think about the mayor being Ebert in Godzilla, the 1998 movie? (laughs) And rather than shoot me down, Roger Ebert uh, said, you know what? I liked it. The only thing I would have changed is I wanted to get stomped by Godzilla because what's the point in being a Godzilla movie <laughs> if you don't get stomped? And I was like, Roger Ebert, I love you. So all through college, I uh, followed his his web work and uh, current wow. reviews. Uh, because uh, in terms of like my interaction with critics, uh, it was Siskel and Ebert occasionally because the two thumbs up system you know, was a marketable thing when we were children. You would see that on like movie posters and stuff. And it was knowing the local reviewers in uh, like Denver, not necessarily because I liked them, but because I could calibrate to them. So there was one guy in Denver where if he liked it, I was going to hate it. And if he hated it, I was going to like it. Uh, But Siskel and Ebert were the only like uh, national critics that I was aware of for a very, very long time. Oh yeah. I mean, how would you have been aware of anyone else who had the platform of of Gene television in that way i was definitely aware yeah. of Gene Shallot. i'm not sure that i like cared what That's he fair. said about movies he was scary. Uh, uh, you know i i uh <laughs> i you know i think about i often think about uh the renown and the access that that siskel and ebert particularly ebert siskel was never really someone i paid attention to separate from ebert uh and i think it's probably true for a lot of people no disrespect to siskel it's just the way it was um, but, uh, I, you know, I think about the, the, the way that this job was for them in a way that could never be for us now. Uh, and I often stop myself and give credit where it's due to Ebert, uh, for, and Cisco, I suppose, who was also writing reviews, even if I didn't happen to be reading them, they weren't as nationally syndicated for the volume of work that they turned out. I tend to think of critics of that generation as being able to go to 
a film festival and spend 10 days you know, luxuriating uh, in the south of France and maybe writing one dispatch about it when they get home, the thousand words for the newspaper or film magazine, whatever the case might be, rather than having to write 3,000 words a day uh, and having absolutely no time to be outside in between eating a two-day-old sandwich and drinking a Red Bull uh, and going to screenings and then taking an Ambien and repeat. Um, but Ebert was really putting in the work. Uh, he, I think, understood the responsibility that his fame uh, and the, the microphone that he was given and earned for himself uh, that, that that came with that and uh, the sway that he had over America's moviegoers. And he, I mean, it was, you know, we can go into the weeds about like how was, he was a champion for a number of different films and filmmakers that wouldn't have gotten the kind of exposure otherwise, that he really put so many different people on the radars, uh, that, um, yeah, and the work was idiosyncratic, even if it got a bit sloppy at times. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm pretty generally pro Ebert, even as long as, you know, you're, you know, as long as it's not all consuming for people, as long as it's a gateway, which I think he was happy to be rather mm-hmm. than sort of, uh, the end of the conversation. I think he did a good job of that. I mean, he like, Dave's story about him like going around to tours like he cared about like up and coming critics in a way that like look I can't think of any like older generation of critics who or film writers who cared like that but not and this is not throwing shade at Ebert but to your point David so monolithic in culture that people like Tarantino would be like Ebert's dead so there are no movie critics Right. It's not Ebert's fault. I'm not I'm not saying it's Ebert's fault, but it's such a such a monolithic, like synonymous with the the medium of the film criticism that when Ebert passed away, I think a lot of people thought film criticism kind of passed on too. Like the mainstream if if it you know, they turn to an aggregator rather than a, a single voice, to your point, Dave. Like so this is the national critic that I knew. Not a lot of people think that way anymore. And that's because there's a million film critics now. Um, and there are only a few good ones. You know, David, I would, I'll, I'll put you on a pedestal here. Wow. But um, they're, they're... It's like hearing Cisco oh, and Ebert I, get along just, for <laughs> once. This is wild. I do think that the influence... I, I think a lot about like the way that they created criticism had such a stranglehold on what people thought about but it, it, film criticism and the reactions that it, 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 the aftermath was very difficult. And it's not their fault, it just that's how important they were. That's how I mean, monolithic the, they became. The reason that Matt wrote his book, the reason that I would be interested to read his book, beyond the fact that Matt wrote it, um, is, is that you know it was just a time and a position where film critics were able to create that kind of formative memory for a generation of people, casual moviegoers and movie fans and You're also talking about like us. Movies when everyone was seeing the same movies, you know, it was. Well, I mean, I think that element of monoculture has not diminished necessarily, but I, I think that. What? The, I mean, people are still, I mean, every single person that's talking about movies right now is talking about Killers of the Flower Moon when a Marvel movie's coming yeah, out. Yeah, but like, about that. I mean, I if think, you're talking uh, about Killers of the Flower Moon are, on like a syndicated talk show, everyone's gonna be like, what the fuck is this? Like, the people who are talking about movies are talking about the same sure, thing, but, but the people who are talking about movies. Nobody's watching syndicated smaller. talk shows anymore. No, I mean, people, that's true. Oh, there's so, like, plenty of chatter about it, even if it's not necessarily at that level of discourse. Let's see if Joe Rogan covered you know, where people the, are watching things. Killers of the Flower Moon this week. Uh, um, mm. <laughs> I wouldn't be shocked, actually. I mean, not that I 
Not that I'm really aware of what I Joe Rogan is or is not doing. I don't want to know but, Joe Rogan's take um, on Killers of the Flower Moon. But like just, the hockey, the hockey bloggers that I follow were talking about Killers of the Flower Moon as like the one movie that they <laughs> oh, oh, wow. made it after the oh, Garden that's, so that's an interesting but, counterpoint. Um, Wait, but, uh, the, mm. No, but I mean, I think, you know, there it was an opportunity to create formative memories and impressions of what film and the dialogue around it could be for people who may have been obsessed, but also people who may have been only sort of drive-by viewers casually interested in this sort of thing. And I think the opportunities to make those sort of impressions are not available to us anymore. I think that Ebert and Siskel were good stewards for that. Um, and, you know, I don't know the intricacies of the role that they had in creating creating that. I mean, if it would have existed without them, it feels like a matter of time, but may not have taken that form. All I'm really saw, all to say, this is all just dancing around their, their greatest legacy, which is, of course, their episode of The Critic. And I will accept no argument. <laughs> I, I was going to bring it up. I was I, I like so much pop culture. I mean, it's not The Simpsons, but there's many people involved with The Critic who who went from The Simpsons to The Critic or back to uh, The Simpsons. Uh, I learned so much about pop culture through those animated Fox shows at the time. Probably didn't even know who e Siskel and Ebert were before The Critic and then got there eventually. But such a huge cultural phenomenon that they can parody it in a three-season Fox show. That's how big they were. They made a whole animated comedy about A Fox show about a film critic. <laughs> yes. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> Can I shout out the? So, uh, okay, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I, there's a. I was you, like looking up Siskel and Ebert clips as I was reading Matt's book, and I pulled up their review of North. Have any of you ever seen their review of North? Yes, in which of course. Roger a Ebert. So is it is it that famous? Uh, he sets up yes. the premise of the movie, and Ebert goes, and that's the premise of the most hateful movie I've seen in several <laughs> years. And they it, they had flourish, that's for sure. It kind of reminded me of a good Matt but, Patches wind up uh, to to dunk on something. <laughs> as I'm telling you, like we we live in their shadow. I mean, they were. I, I know we're dragging this out, but they understood on that show. I mean, their their talents took them elsewhere as well. Uh, and other you know venues for them to express their opinion and write and discuss film, but they understood that that show was first and foremost about entertainment and only secondly about advocacy. And that I think is an ethos that um, is important in regardless of what kind of film criticism you're creating. I think if you're writing about film, it may not it may not be as snackable as something like that, but I think it needs to be readable. You cannot and enjoyable, say snackable you you know, for people to read. Bring up the ghost of Quibi on this uh, show, but it it I think it needs to be enjoyable, you know, for it to be interesting, um, to a degree. And they they understood that anyway. The book, book is Opposable Thumbs: How Siskel and Ebert Changed Movies Forever by Matt Singer. It came out this week. It's available now. As somebody who has recently got into the hardcover nonfiction sales, uh, I wish him all the best luck coming out the same week as Britney Spears. Get both. <laughs> that's 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 my that's my uh, consumer advocacy. Uh, yeah, for you this uh, week. New York Times bestseller MCU is still available for purchase. I, Dave won't say it, so I will. Yeah, I'm sure I'll say it at some point. <laughs> This week in theaters, Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon has been released. It is based on a book of the same title that I greatly enjoyed, but a nonfiction book about the very real 
uh, American history of what they call the reign of terror, uh, even though it is mostly about Osage Indians being murdered. Why? Well, this movie tells you right at the beginning. They became uh, some of the richest people in America per capita when the land they were resettled on by the U.S. government in Oklahoma turned it out to be oil rich. And so the Osage got the rights to that land that they were allowed to sell or rent out uh, to oil companies. And because of that, uh, this tribe got uh, extremely wealthy, which, of course, brings the white vultures, as we know from history. And Killers of the Flower Moon is the story of probably the most notable uh, series of murders uh, that took place during this long run where I think. We, we don't know exactly for sure how many uh, Osage were killed. Yeah, and very few people uh, were prosecuted. So it's most notable, if only because it's one where some people actually went to jail. Correct. Uh, it stars uh, a whole bunch of uh, great actors that you've seen in Martin Scorsese movies before, like Robert De Niro and Leonardo DiCaprio. Jesse Plemons. Uh, and also uh, of the Jesse Irishman. Plemons. Also has would, would we say that this movie stars Jesse Plemons? He is in it. <laughs> getting my head, it, getting ahead of myself. He is, he's in an hour He's in a of larger it. role than Jack White. He's he's in the background during several pivotal <laughs> scenes. <laughs> um, uh, but they've uh, recentered the narrative uh, for, off the nonfiction book to sort of follow uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's character and his marriage to Lily Gladstone, uh, who um, they. Uh, it's sort of are at the center of a family murder plot. How much do we consider spoilers considering this is history? Matt Patches, you haven't seen the movie. How much is spoilers? Well, I think anything dramatically. I, I, who do you, th- don't know who the do you think Isn't is the, the bad point? guy in I mean, Killers I, of the I think, Flower Moon? Well, but I, 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 I don't s- think you have to worry about spoilers. I think you want to worry about. No, but I, I don't think spo- talking about this in context of. I don't think talking about this movie in context of spoilers is helpful because. I think it is not productive to act as if the movie is coy about the identity yes. of the murderers. It's very, the murderers. That's yes. a very that's deliberate part I mean, of it. Right. The whole point of this is as the David Graham book is actually structured yes. like true crime mystery and they do withhold that right. information. They do, it One, is a bit of a page turner. Mm-hmm. This movie is getting it right out of the gate telling yes. you who by, is the by bad By casting person Robert really De Niro home, right? and having him wear a cream suit kind of gets you there now, right from the very beginning. But one of... <laughs> I mean, there are there is, it's, as it's there is in just about any Scorsese movie, a mm-hmm. fair bit of humor, uh, mm-hmm. even if it's gall- of the gallows variety. But I think that, um, you know, one of the... Um, one of the most interesting things about this adaptation, which I think, you know, has its pros and cons is that decision because it allows the movie to sort of proceed with just the just the arrogance the inhumanity uh by being so blunt about and they, i mean they, there's not a scene where they just like cuts back or, or the camera pulls back to find robert de niro holding um a bloody knife or a pistol um you know it's just sort of a matter of fact that he is the mastermind behind um, the killings and in order to get all the, the rights, these head rights um, and collect the money. And it's so it's so entitled and out in the open. And I think it, a much more insidious depiction of evil for that rather than it being a grand revelation that is accompanied by a long winded speech about why he felt like it was within his rights to do this. Um, well, yeah, because he's effectively 
commit genocide. He's sitting there in meetings where the Osage, you know, elders are gathering and being like, "How we need to figure out who did this." And he's like, "I will offer a thousand dollar bounty to whoever can find the killer." And like, you're kind of watching these two things happening at the same time, which is a cognitive dissonance that he and like most of the other white people in, I mean, maybe not most, but many of them were doing, where they're you know pretending not to be doing these heinous things that were happening for years, decades. Yeah. Uh, I I think it's really great. I think it, Leonardo DiCaprio is as good here as he's ever been in anything. Uh, because once again, he's in the Wolf of Wall Street position where if you go just by on paper, it would look like he's the protagonist. But the second he's on screen against Robert De Niro, which is in like the first 10 minutes, you're like, oh, this guy has this this guy has no grit and yeah. uh, is just going to get steamrolled. And so it's a uh, sort of like they, they focus a lot on him. His character's name's Ernest. And then Lily Gladstone's character is named Molly they, on their marriage uh, and relationship uh, and how uh, it seems like Ernest is actually buying into this, but not being able to reckon with the cognitive dissonance of what he's actually uh, doing, helping uh, his father or his uncle, uh, Robert De Niro, who's, uh, his name's William Hale. Uh, the real person's name and uh so there was a bit of time for me where i'm like oh no this is going to be received like wolf of wall street where people are like we're on you know why'd they make this movie from the white guy's side uh but as the Mm. movie goes i mean as the movie goes on all all of your fears have been realized the worst takes are out there if you look for them but we don't (laughs) have to talk about them the takes are are waiting for you in your for you tab Mm -hmm. simply Uh, open x and click on over and while I do agree that about, you know, two hours into this three and a half hour movie, I felt like we'd sort of lost the Osage. Uh, by the time it wraps up, I realized why. And it's this uh, very confident step by Martin Scorsese to uh, very actively make sure that he's staying in his own lane. Um, and it, because of that, it becomes, uh, you know, at some point we we're watching the crimes happen and then uh jesse plebbins is tom white who is a huge character in the book and here just kind of shows up to get the end of the movie started eventually starts prosecuting uh what we actually saw happen and we get some more flashbacks uh some brutal flashbacks where you wouldn't expect them uh to sort of explain the things that we didn't see so ultimately i came down on really liking this movie even though there was a period of time in the middle of it where i'm like you're on shaky ground here marty i hope you stick this landing and fuck me for doubting it because he sticks the landing in a well, really unique and interesting you, you don't way. You think you have to diss for yourself for for it, it's okay <sighs> to doubt Scorsese once in a while. Uh, yes, but it had yeah, nothing I mean, to I do with away, my opinions about I came Marvel. away from the finished film with with some doubts of Scorsese. I mean, he's certainly aware of what those doubts might be. I mean, this is nothing if not a movie that is in conversation with its own limitations, as Dave gingerly alluded to. I mean, the, you know, as far as spoilers go. Uh, the last scene has been discussed a lot, but I do think that it's worth um, it's it's worth withholding exactly what happens there. But I, it does speak to exactly what Dave was talking about. Um, I do think it is sort of a retroactive apology for some of the movie's split attentions because you know it does try it does ditch a lot of the stuff about you know the book subtitles, sort of like the the birth the. Or the, what is the book subtitle? The, the birth, birth of the, the FBI. The birth, uh, oh the birth God. of the FBI. I don't have the yeah, book but I mean, it is, it is about the birth of the FBI. The, this movie it is a story about the end of the West as we know it and the creation of the 20th, 20th century as we came to know it. 
Um, and the movie is not really interested in operating at that mythic scale, for better or worse. I mean, it wants to. It's operating it, on a it's, mythic scale. It just has nothing to do no, with three law hours enforcement. And 40, it's three hours and 30 minutes long, well, no, but I would say I th- it's more I, intimate than it is epic. Yeah, I don't um, know. I think some of the but, visuals and the way that it captures the West really get an epicness. I just don't think oh, the birth of the FBI I, is of interest I'm not whatsoever. sure that I... I'm not sure that I agree, but I also am not interested in the movie necessarily about the nuts and bolts of the birth of the FBI, but I do think that there is a grandeur to the storytelling in a macro sense that you get from the book that I had kind of mistaken, not mistakenly, but I, I, in a rare decision uh, for preparedness and needing to review this movie in a very brief period of time, read the book in advance um, and had a sort of a different sense of the story that the movie would be telling going in. And I was a little confused by all of the chatter about how they had reframed it to be less about white people and more about the voice of the Osage because Ernest Burkhart is, uh, you know, unimpeachably the main character of the story and uh, his relationship with, um, with Molly, it was played wonderfully by Lily Gladstone um, who is, you know, the, the sort of the soul of the film, even if she spends much of it ailing in the background uh, is, is far and away the most interesting thing about it. Um, but I do feel like it, it, it. There are times, particularly over that second half, where Dave was saying he felt like he was losing the Osage a little bit, where the movie is trying, it, it's struggling to sort of concede to what the story wants to be about, like the the, the overall the, 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 the trial and the, what actually happened to all these characters. Uh, with it's trying to reconcile, struggling to reconcile that with the 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 genocide, the hurt of the Osage and how the relationship between uh, Ernest and Molly is functioning as sort of a microcosm of the, the poison that the, that uh, De Niro's character and the white people at large who'd come and, and sort of raped the Osage land. Um, yeah. It's hard because were, you've got, you know, it's a microcosm of the dynamic. You've got Molly as your main figure of the Osage, like entering into the Osage world by then, like most of her relatives are dead. And then she is in bed with diabetes and like, can't get out. Like there is a real challenge in framing focus there. And I agree with Dave that like telling the story about the white guys is ultimately the point very much. And like, I think that's why you have Scorsese make this movie. I mean, I think if you take away the expectations of like, ah, they're telling it about the Osage this time, like it does change and i'd be interested in seeing it again i saw it last back in june you kind of see how those expectations can shift i read the book right before i saw the movie too and kind of spent a lot of time being like what am i supposed to know and when am i supposed to know it um but if it's a scorsese movie that grows more for you on second viewing like that also sounds pretty good but i also yeah. think that like the you know so many of the complaints that i've been reading on twitter where you know all you need the to get off twitter is my first is, recommendation. I know, I mean, and the dialogue around this movie both the breathless hosannas from people who have a reverent feeling about martin scorsese and some of the outrage from the representation that you know depiction is is uh, endorsement crowd or you know they're people who are adjacent to them whatever form that argument is taking around this movie um you know, there, there's been a lot of that, but I also think that like a lot of the a lot of the criticism is about the humanity that Scorsese allegedly affords Ernest Burkhart, and that you see through Leonardo DiCaprio. I mean, I think what might be Leonardo DiPaio's best performance. Uh, I, I mean, believe I saw that in very large font in a trailer with your name yeah. underneath it. So I, I mean, think you yeah. do believe it's his best. Jack performance. Dawson will always have my heart, but I really think that the technical <laughs> excellence of this performance and like how not just the lack of vanity, but like how cretinous he is, mm-hmm. um, but still human. Um, and not in a way that is at all 
um, that it all absolves him. It's not sympathetic uh, at sympathetic all, but it's pitiful not at all. in, in but, a really interesting but way. It does. I, I think stories like this are not necessarily worth telling, you know, beyond just simply accounting for the dead if they don't recognize the perpetrators as human as well. I mean, they can mm-hmm. be monsters and human at the same time, but I think, you know, stripping them of their humanity um, is an act of denial in, in a way. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think it's so it's so fascinating how the movie digs into that. Um, I do think, you know, that which has been sort of the most outsized complaint about it is the most fascinating thing about it. I also hear the argument that some of the people who've worked in the film and uh, have made that this is really not a movie for people who are well versed on this story or the Osage community themselves, but rather as we learn in, in very explicit ways towards the end of the film, um, the intention being to sort of reflect on why the story is not better known um, and uh, memorialize the dead and um, sort of sit with, you know, who it gets to tell it and, and what it means to sort of bring this back from the annals of history, exhume this, this you know, genocidal tragedy. I mean, I think these are all things that when the movie is firing on all cylinders, it does as well as any movie I've seen. Um, I just think that it, it doesn't quite strike the right balance between the story that it was afraid of telling and the story it ultimately does tell. I mean, I think the question of why tell this story and for who like really changes when you bring it to cinema, like a format that has dealt with the Western so many times, like that has depicted Native Americans in so many uh, mostly horrifying ways. Like, I think you have Scorsese who kind of has every movie ever made in his head at a given moment and you reframe the language of those movies and the voice stories about the, you know how the west was won and how american civilization started uh it makes it powerful i mean a lot of scorsese's history movies are kind of about like the poisonous root of how our entire country was born and i think for him to tackle a, the west in that project of his um he kind of couldn't have he had to make a western if he wanted to talk about how america starts from a rotten core and and he has I like it a lot. I want to see it again so I could watch Lily Gladstone some more because mm-hmm. really early on, Robert De Niro says that, you know, the Osage are wise people. They don't talk that much, but they know everything and they refer to it. I think they call it like blackbird talk, like what other people do to sort of like talk and fill words. And like Lily Gladstone, Leonardo DiCaprio, both great. Leonardo DiCaprio is given 90% of the dialogue in that relationship. And uh, L- uh, Lily Gladstone's Molly has to portray it through stillness which i think the movie keeps calling it back to so even though i felt like because the movie is uh, propulsive as a crime th- thriller uh towards the end that i was sort of losing her maybe she's there and i just wasn't i wasn't reading when she's reinserted back into the story uh correctly because i'm i'm sure there's something about like she doesn't need to have a yelling monologue like Ernest does before we get where she's coming no. from. And, and, you know, it's, it's, you know, case in point as to why it's so foolish to judge performances based on the duration of screen time that they yeah. are given. I mean, she is a presence that looms large over the course of the movie, even if she is not on screen for, for you know, for, for the majority of it. Um, but I, 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 I do think that at a certain point, by the time Brendan Fraser shows up for sure, um, I yeah. did wish that their relationship was more the focus of the movie rather than a context for it. Look, we did not um, know or... the whale was coming when they made Killers of the Flower Moon. <laughs> it's not their fault. Um, but I mean, I'm not one of those people who was like crucifying Brendan Fraser for his performance here. I mean, I don't 
I, I didn't particularly enjoy it, but it's also like three lines, three hours into a film that has a lot of other things going on for it. And he is, uh, you know, merely one in a large uh, menagerie of people who show up for similar amounts of time. Um, but, uh, I mean, and there are people, uh, Louis, like Louis cancel me. He was a, a guy who is a huge standout in this movie. His name is Cancel um, Me. Cancel Me. Louis Cancel Me. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, and there, there are wonderful performances here. Kara Jade Myers, who plays Anna, the kind of like spiky party sister of Molly. She's really good in like 20 minutes of the movie. Yeah. But yeah. I, and I think it's, 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 it's incredible. It's an invaluable chapter in Scorsese's hopefully ongoing the book that he's writing effectively about the soul of America is the modeled soul, you know, the country born out of corruption um, and, you know, how that has been manifest in so many different forms over the years. And, uh, you know, I think it is a Western in some respects and people have built it sort of as first, but um, I do think that it is more, there's more in common um, at its essence with films like, Wolf of Wall Street and The Irishman and, you know, other things from Scorsese's body of work than it does with, you know, John Ford. Sure. Uh, in a way. So or, or you know, whatever people tend to think as being uh, um, synonymous with Westerns. So, you know, it's a uh, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's a great Scorsese movie about the soul of America that you can watch at home. The Irishman. Wolf of Wall Street. Did we just sleep on like I feel like The Irishman got so swept away. After 2019, because I, you know, some other stuff I, happened. Did you fall asleep during the Irishman? I've only I've only seen the Irishman once, and I, I, I mean, I really admired it, um, and I, I found the last two hours gripping. The first two, not so much. I mean, I found it's the, only three hours long. The CGI, hours. The, the de aging, the de aging stuff, like so, was such a deal breaker for me. Um, I, I, I don't say that with with pride. Um, I wish I could have seen past it, but I, I really struggled. Um, and I felt like that, you know, when Scorsese gets into these epic lengths, I did feel like he is, you know, no disrespect to, uh, the great Thelma Schoonmacher, but I do think that th there is a, uh, things get a little bit messy and unfocused for me, or maybe that's more, it says more about my attention span than anything else. I rewatched um, it, uh, recently in chunks. I'm not, I cannot do it, uh, in full again, but I, <laughs> it's so good. I, it goes so hard watching it again. I got past the de-aging, just, just throwing out that I feel like the Irishman has been kind of um, unfairly slept on, as um, Francesca Scorsese might say. Uh, well, I owe it a rewatch for sure. As but a, I do last... appreciate that in the... Sorry, Dave. I was just going to say last yeah. thing, but I do appreciate that in you know the discourse, as far as I've seen it, um, and maybe this is just sort of like a self-fulfilling prophecy or a confirmation bias, but it does feel like people are beginning to come around on The Wolf of Wall Street as one of his canonical masterpieces. Well, I, which... I feel like what's been fun is the canonical masterpieces. Everyone throws out one of 20 movies and everyone's like, yeah, okay. Right. I mean, the, the guy's made some good movies. Turns out. And you don't like Alice Doesn't Live Here no, anymore? I love I mean, Alice about I that love it. Oh, I thought you were shitting no, on no, it. No, no, no. I feel like people leave it out when they're talking about it in his masterpieces. Mm, it's amazing. That, I know the tweet, the tweet was misleading. All right. I think there was a, I think there was <laughs> a skeet. Go back to the drawing board. It was a skeet. Good news if good news if the Irishman was too much for you. Uh, visual effects and Killers of the Flower Moon, very good in the sense that you will not notice them. Uh, Robert De Niro and Leonardo DiCaprio play two guys over like uh, a decade of their lives, and um, no no touch up is done. Uh, it is uh, just all through the acting. 
Leonardo DiCaprio slowly makes himself have jowls just by mouth placement alone. <laughs> uh, that that's how that's how Ernest Burkhart goes in this movie. But yeah, I love in the, theaters. The, oh god. I was just like I couldn't stop thinking about how he comes back to his town, Oklahoma, and he's like clearly like an Oklahoma ten or like a New York six, and like that's like this entire character. When you see <laughs> the pictures of the real Ernest Burkhart, too, rattling around my you're head like, yeah, the okay, the yeah, like it really tracks yeah. that he was like good looking enough for Oklahoma in 1920. Right, like he was a real prize uh, coming back there. Yeah, except he even though he had a, shit. you know, chewing on his jowls, and, you know, being a terrible human being with a big <laughs> void in the middle of his soul and, and being like, I got a busted gut. <laughs> gut was busted. Uh, yeah, it's in theaters right now, and after it completes its theatrical run, we'll come out on uh, Apple TV, but, uh, but we don't know yeah. when, right? We don't know when. Yeah, I think they're uh, I think so... they're trying to keep it in theaters for a long time. I hope it stays in theaters a long time. Good. Like I want to see it again, Patches. I know you want to see it, so please keep it in theaters so we can get there. Yeah, give Killers of the Flower Moon legs. We did it keep with it, Elemental. Keep it in theaters, we can do it with Rusty. Well, also, send me like a high definition link so I can rewatch it at home <laughs> without having to abandon my two children for an entire. Like day. we all saw it in theaters for three and a half hours. Are people being big babies about how long this movie is and how much time it takes? No, they're. Oh, hold on, <laughs> they're not being big babies. This is where I enter the conversation, saying I want to see this movie. I tried to see this movie. Three and a half hours is a pr- look. I'm not part of the movies are too long discourse, but like this is prohibitively long. For a lot of people to go see this movie in theaters, I'm surprised it made so much money because it can only play so many times at at multiplex. Only play once a week. <laughs> like I'm a guy who tries to see the movies after bedtime. I cannot see this movie after bedtime. It's too late, and I can't go during work. And like, when are you supposed to sit down for a three and a half hour movie? It is very challenging. Two so p.m. Sympathetic to anyone who I'm, cannot make I'm it not, to this movie. Right not now. telling you. It's a struggle. I mean, I I am struggle. not especially sympathetic because people. This is the average length of time that you would spend in a Broadway theater, for example, at a fraction of the price. Mm. For watching a football game. Absolutely not. Or watching a football big. game. It is. I mean, you, from the moment you enter, uh, if you show up 15 minutes before curtain for Hamilton, uh, you are going to be there for about three and a half this hours. This is not an average per, uh, Average people do not attend Broadway I'm shows. I'm not saying, but you they don't bitch about it when they do. I mean, I haven't been to a Broadway show in five years because for very, various people reasons. Attend tour- so that's why but people are people not... People attend touring Broadway shows. Broadway shows play all over the country, Baptist. It's not just a New York thing. Yeah. And it is not, the, It is not. unfortunately, it is not the time commitment first and foremost that is keeping me away from Broadway uh, <laughs> or from shows of any kind. I mean, uh, if you're going to see a three and a half hour movie, this is a Martin Scorsese one. So sure. if you like movies, it feels like that's a possible lift. You know, I, I don't think we need like, you know, an Avengers Endgame every year. That's that makes no sense to me. But yeah, if you if you're into movies and you could make time in the theaters, absolutely. If not, Avatar Patches, two was it'll be We just did Oppenheimer at three dick. flat and it was a huge hit and nobody. I mean, people complained, I guess, but it was still Sympathy. a huge hit. Sympathy for the people who cannot. Yeah, one of these days, I'm finally going to gather my thoughts and write about how the push for shorter movies, particularly at the dawn of digital cinema, ruined and, and sort of uh, de. It doesn't need to be a push for uh, sucked the spin movies. out of the, the life out of movies it has for to be so that, long. Like, some people are going to see this on streaming. That's it's okay. okay. I'm not saying it's not okay to see it on streaming. I like, and I think like having genuine life difficulties logistically. I, but I think being like, I cannot believe that someone would ask me to go see a three and a half hour movie. It's like, well. Fine, don't see it. Like it's just not it's not a moral dilemma. If only 
if only they put a credit at the beginning of the movie that said, and Jared Leto as the Hatbox <laughs> hat ghost, ghost. He'd people be like, would be rooted to their seats until he <laughs> well, showed up. Or, and also really pissed off when the, the movie ends and you haven't seen no, the Hatbox Ghost. No, you can just pop, pop him in there. Just in the background. Sponsored by the Hatbox Ghost. <laughs> Ooh. Uh, yeah. In theaters now, go see it if you can. No judgment. I just, I just think it's a good movie. Yeah. See? Not that hard. That does it for this week's show. As uh, as has been promised, I'm watching a scary movie next week. What's it called again? It's on Shutter. What are we watching next week? It's on Shutter. It's called when evil, uh, evil, when lurks. evil lurks. Do I have Shutter? Not where? Do I have to pay for Shutter? We'll get you Shutter. Okay. Oh, do you have to pay for Shutter for a month? I just am like, I just am like, is it? It's it's a it's a fraction well, of like, a Broadway does show. Does it come with like? And you get all the Does it come with Hulu? Shutter. Is it on Tubi? Is it something I already pay for? No. Okay, so I got to pay for Shutter. You okay. Just get a Shutter. I will pay for Shutter. Or you could get it on Amazon. Actually, you could plug it into Prime Video. What's have, wrong with you? I have as part of my streaming budget, uh, Shutter in September and October mm. because every year I'm always just like. Where are the weird horror movies? And they're always on Shutter. Yep. They like it's you can't you can't depend on Max for the the horror movies of this caliber. So uh, I I do two months of Shutter every year, bar none. What's it like to keep a budget and not just be too terrified to consider your finances and how little you have? Of I them th- I think I'd be in a really different place in my life if I could that? have a careful budget keeping, but I I, I don't. I mm. really only have like a streaming budget, and what it unfortunately tells me is that oh, I can spend more money if I turn this off for a month and this on for a month, uh, and uh, it's I don't know if it's helpful or not. I I was I had a better time just spending money and not thinking about it. If that helps, David. Mm. Okay. Uh, it does. Well, we'll be talking about that next week. In the meantime, tell the people who you are. I'm Matt Patches, executive editor at Polygon.com. I'm on Twitter and Blue Sky and Letterbox at Mr. Patches. We have a website, FightingInTheWarRoom.com, where you can listen to us probably talk about some of the a lot of these late game Martin Scorsese movies. Hugo might have been one of the first oh, oh, we yeah. talked about on this podcast. I'm sure, we did a wolf. Uh, we Show some respect to Hugo. Sure, we did a Wolf of Wall Street. Probably did a Silence uh, cast at some point. So go back and uh, relive the late years of Martin Scorsese on FightingInTheWorm.com. Oh, it's my turn. Uh, I am David Ehrlich. You can find me on X at David Ehrlich on. Blue Sky at David Ehrlich. Uh, on IndieWire at my byline, where I've written about Killers of the Flower Moon once, a long time ago, and not since. Because uh, I need to revisit it at some point. A lot going on there. Um, you can find all of us together on iTunes, Fighting in the War Room. Leave us a review. We'll read it live on the show. Or else, I will talk about Marvel Snap. Mm, or else. Yeah, that's true. You can also email those reviews if you are doing them internationally and want us to still see them at fitwr.podcast at gmail.com. You can also email us about lots of other stuff. We've got some book recommendations I forwarded around to everybody. Uh, you can find me on uh, Twitter, I guess, X, whatever. Uh, it's called Twitter in my book. So I'm going to say uh, Twitter at DA70 uh, on Blue Sky at DA70. And yeah, check out MCU The Reign of Marvel Studios. Uh, out now. Uh, I only have to talk about it for a couple more months. Uh, just to get us to that holiday season. <laughs> uh, 
I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at Vanity Fair, where I wrote about the ending of Killers of the Flower Moon and had a really good time writing about it. If you see the movie and want to read my take on it, there are lots of them out there, but mine is the best. Um, I'm also on the Little Gold Men podcast, where we also talked about Killers of the Flower Moon and how it might do at the Oscars, if that, if you're wondering why I didn't bring it up here, because I already did it there. Um, you can find me. I'm still I'm still on X. I don't know. I don't know. It might I might be getting near the end uh, at Katie Rich, but I'm also on Blue Sky, where I'm trying to use it more, also at Katie Rich. Uh, and you can find us in both places for now at FITWR, where um, you can tell us your favorite performance in Killers of the Flower Moon we didn't mention, or you can answer this week's lightning round question, which was. In honor of Five Nights at Freddy's, what animatronic from your childhood would make a terrifying slasher villain? Thanks for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. Yeah.